This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Okay, uh, welcome to uh, this final plenary of the uh, ASIN conference, and I'm very pleased to welcome our speakers today, uh, Matthew Goodwin of the University of Kent uh, and Anna Triandafilidou, uh, who's a professor at the uh, European University Institute in Florence. Um, Matt, uh, Matthew Goodwin, uh, who, as I mentioned, is a professor of politics at the University of Kent, and uh, many of you will be familiar with his book with uh, Rob Ford uh, on UKIP, which uh, came out in, in 2014 entitled Revolt on the Right. And Matt is also the author with uh, Caitlin Malazzo, who's right over here, of uh, a new book uh, on UKIP. And I actually forget the title. What's the title of your book? Inside the Campaign. Inside the Campaign, sorry. Uh, so please do get your copy. Um, so we're going to begin uh, with Matt, who will be uh, speaking on ethnicity, nationalism, and the populist right in Europe. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming along. Uh, final slot of uh, your conference, and it's sunny outside, uh, so I appreciate the commitment. Um, <clears throat> so this is uh, one of the first talks, I think the first talk in five years where I've not used PowerPoint. I decided to go old school. It's also the first talk where I've actually written the full paper. Um, so what I want to talk about is actually not British politics, um, but the broader uh, academic literature on the populist right, uh, which I appreciate stands somewhat apart from... Uh, your own uh, literature. Um, so anyway, so one of the most striking developments in contemporary European politics has been the rise and the persistence of the populist right, beginning in the late 1970s with the anti-tax progress parties in Scandinavia and then expanding to include the rise of more openly ethnic nationalist parties like Jean-Marie Le Pen's National Front in France, uh, Jörg Haider's Freedom Party of Austria, Gianfranco Fini's National Alliance in Italy, and more recently parties like the True Finns and the Sweden Democrats. The emergence of the populist right has attracted strong interest from uh, social scientists as well as academic uh, policymakers and journalists. If you were to look at the opinion polls, uh, today the Freedom Party of Austria, now led by Christian Stracker, sits comfortably in first place. Uh, the Party for Freedom in the Netherlands, led by the overtly uh, Islamophobic uh, Gert Wilders, uh, is also sitting comfortably uh, in first place. At elections last year in Switzerland, the Swiss People's Party won the largest share of the vote for any populist right uh, party in the entire post-war uh, era, at uh, almost 30%. The year before that, in 2014, uh, populist right parties won the European Parliament, uh, won their European Parliament elections in Denmark, France, uh, and here in the United Kingdom. While other members of this very loose and diverse party family either won seats for the first time at those elections or sustained their existing and often significant presence in the European Parliament. 
And even in recent weeks, the events in Europe have reminded us uh, of the ongoing salience uh, of uh, the populist right. Recent elections in Germany saw the alternative uh, for Germany uh, break through, notably in Saxony, where the party finished second with over 24% of the vote. And uh, there have also been uh, increases in support for lesser studied cases. Recent elections in Slovakia, for example, uh, an overtly neo-fascist party, Our Slovakia, entered uh, its national parliament for the first time, while in Hungary, the anti-Roma and anti-Semitic Jobbik movement not only remains the second largest party uh, in the opinion polls, but last week won its first parliamentary uh, district uh, in a uh, by-election. These parties have emerged in European states that have grappled with disproportionately high levels of unemployment, as well as states uh, that have experienced some of the lowest levels of unemployment, both during the Eurozone uh, crisis as well as in the aftermath. Uh, examples of high unemployment, such as Greece, contrast with uh, low unemployment cases, such as uh, Austria and the Netherlands. And looking ahead, it is likely that the populist right will remain a significant force for many years to come. We have in Britain our referendum on uh, EU membership, which is likely to draw a renewed interest in uh, uh, a brand of uh, radical right politics that has become fused with uh, Euroscepticism. Elections next year in France and Germany and also the Netherlands will uh, uh, continue uh, to uh, attract interest uh, to the populist right. And three years from now, at the so-called second order elections at the, uh, for the European Parliament, we're likely to see uh, strong uh, support for uh, this party family. And it's quite clear that they are operating amidst a very favourable political climate. If you look, for example, uh, at some of the comparative European survey data, such as the Eurobarometer data, it's quite clear that there are a number of significant political opportunities that were not there 10 or 20 years ago. Over the past 12 months in particular, public concern in Europe over uh, the core issue for this party family, namely immigration, uh, has sharpened uh, significantly. In 2015 alone, uh, in Britain, the percentage of voters uh, identifying immigration as one of the top two issues uh, facing uh, their, their uh, country jumped from 31 to 61 percent. Uh, in Greece, it jumped from 12 to 52 percent. In Germany, it jumped from 37 to 76 percent. Uh, these concerns over rising ethnic and cultural diversity have combined with increased public skepticism toward the European Union. Uh, trust in the European Union, trust in national parliaments, uh, trust in uh, national government uh, is uh, significantly lower than it was 10 uh, or even 20 uh, years ago, all of which presents uh, uh, not just one but a cluster of opportunities for parties that have responded to the, these events far more effectively than their predecessors did in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, indeed, when we've analysed individual level survey data on support for the populist right here in uh, Britain, we found that its support was strongest among groups that have uh, been especially hard hit by globalisation uh, and uh, the transition toward a more precarious post-industrial service economy, uh, support, for example, for the UK Independence Party has consistently been strongest among working class uh, white men who identify with Englishness rather than Britishness, who uh, lack uh, educational qualifications and who feel not concerned only about immigration 
but also uh, their country's membership of the European Union and the performance of domestic uh, party politics. And clearly now, in a way, the landscape has changed given uh, the role of broader external events that have continued to cultivate potential uh, for uh, the populist right. Most notably, and I'm sure you've discussed it at the conference, the eruption of the uh, pan-Europe uh, uh, refugee crisis, which has underscored the salience of those uh, immigration concerns, while also igniting a more specific anxiety over culturally distinctive communities and the perceived effects of diversity more broadly. So rather than be seen in isolation, these have added to a broader set of factors that are working more generally to sustain support for the populist right party family. Other notable opportunities include a deep and protracted Eurozone financial crisis that has sharpened concerns among blue-collar uh, manual workers, uh, also more financially insecure members of the lower middle classes and the self-employed, uh, an often neglected group in the story of the populist right. Uh, a distinct lack of economic growth and productivity across much of Europe more generally, which has been entrenched by a failure on the part of political elites to deliver uh, structural reform. Strong Euroscepticism that in many states is no longer restricted to the Euro single currency as it once was or to EU level policy, but has become fused with populist uh, xenophobia and welfare chauvinism and widespread anti-establishment sentiment that is reflected in historically low levels of political trust and satisfaction. Now, of course, there are deeper currents, and some of us uh, who are working in the literature are aware of what they are. Some of you will already be thinking about theories of nationalism, uh, intergroup relations, and uh, contributions from, from your own literature. Um, I'm thinking more specifically, given where I'm coming from, about work um, that's been done in recent years by political scientists that has pointed to significant shifts in the underlying cleavage of uh, uh, the underlying cleavage in European politics. Uh, in short, and based on large-scale uh, survey data, some political scientists have argued convincingly, in my view, that the emergence and persistence of the populist right is best understood as a national communitarian counter-offensive to the universalistic values that were initially advocated by new left movements during the 1960s and 1970s and which have since been embraced by those social groups who have had the resources and the skills and the education to adapt to uh, the economic transformation of European societies who uh, have uh, university-level education, social mobility, uh, and uh, a greater sense of economic security. And that culture divide, I think, is incredibly important now to explaining uh, the, the appeal of the populist right. Seen through this lens, the rise of these parties is actually less about the single issue of immigration than a politically mobilized counter-revolt among citizens who have or perceive themselves to have had benefited little from the transition to a post-industrial service-based economy, globalization, and EU integration. Voting for the populist right for some political scientists is thus seen as an instrumental effort to uphold their national community against disappearing borders, to defend their national culture, sets of values and ways of life against multiculturalism and so-called superdiversity, which is often associated by its advocates as having purely economic benefits, but also triggers intense cultural concerns among those who feel more anxious over its consequences within the social and cultural spheres. But many questions remain unanswered, and many avenues have yet to be explored, which brings me to the main part uh, of, of my talk, and essentially speaks to what we are all doing as researchers. 
Over the past 30 years, there's no doubt that the social science, sciences have devoted considerable attention to trying to understand uh, and explain the appeal of populist right parties, as well as their impact upon policy and politics. And I think it's fair to say, at this point in time at least, the consensus within the literature on the populist right is that that impact has been slightly exaggerated. Uh, and that these parties have not had the concrete and long-term impact upon public policy that was initially um, uh, expected during the 1990s. This literature in the subfield of political behaviour is often traced to Klaus von Behm's edited volume, Right-Wing Extremism in Western Europe, which was published in 1988. That book was followed by a series of notable classics, including Hans-Jörg Betz's Radical Right-Wing Populism in Western Europe, published in 1994, Herbert Kitschelt's The Radical Right in Western Europe, A Comparative Analysis, published in 1997, and more recently, Kassmutter's Populist Radical Right Parties in Europe, which was published in 2007. Such books have helped to fuel a broader surge of academic interest in the populist right family. Today on Google Scholar, a simple search of the terms populism produces more than 129,000 hits. A search of extreme right, which was the term that was most often used until the early 2000s, returns 123,000 hits. And radical right, the more recent and generally preferred term among most academics working in this area, produces over 30,000 hits. There is little doubt that this is the most uh, studied uh, party family in modern Europe, and I'm sure many of you will be aware that you do not have to look hard to find enthusiastic graduate students who want to add further to this literature. But there remain notable gaps, and I want to suggest today that several unresolved questions within that literature could perhaps be better answered by the study of ethnicity and nationalism, which so far has at least uh, tended to remain disengaged from this literature on uh, political manifestations of nationalist uh, belief and ideology. The study of ethnicity and nationalism through its interest in the sources and nature of ethnic identity, identity politics, and increasingly, as you've been talking about at this conference today and over recent days, the role and impact of demographic change, is ideally positioned to address notable weaknesses within the literature on the populist right, which I would suggest is failing to throw full light on the underlying appeal of these parties and the factors outside of party systems, the factors beyond individual voters that have facilitated the emergence of these parties. In short, until now, there's been little interaction between these two literatures, and there needs to be more. There are, of course, some notable exceptions. In recent years, students of nationalism studies have sought to explain the success of the populist right by pointing to how these parties have increasingly sought to embed their discourse in appeals to civic elements of national identity and in claims to, the, and in claims to be the natural defenders of culture and values. Others have pointed at the role of nationalist beliefs and symbolism within specific movements, such as the so-called defense leagues or in political parties uh, like the UK Independence Party. But in general terms, there has been a striking lack of interaction. So what I wanted to do is suggest three possible avenues down which future collaboration uh, may, may like to head and which may, in turn, help us resolve some puzzles that remain uh, very much uh, in place in the literature. First, if it is true, as uh, political scientists such as Hans-Peter Creasy uh, would suggest, 
that the populist right is now benefiting from a new cleavage structure that underpins European societies, then this raises some intriguing but largely unanswered questions. Foremost, there is a striking lack of research on how this new so-called cultural cleavage, which is now seen as being more important than the old left-right um, labor capital cleavage, essentially, um, what remains unclear is how this new cultural cleavage and concerns over immigration have been shaped by actual levels of ethnic diversity or actual rates of ethnic change over time. In sharp contrast to the literature on public attitudes toward immigration, which has attracted a vast uh, amount of interest from social scientists uh, and where multi-level analyses uh, have flourished, and where experimental research uh, has increasingly pushed uh, the boundaries uh, forward. In the study of the populist right, there is still a clear need for more research on how contextual conditions influence support for these parties, uh, in particular how the local ethnic context, uh, either at the neighborhood, uh, regional, and even national level, uh, influence support for these parties, and which I would suggest, and I think this is what speaks to perhaps research um, that's being discussed at this conference, uh, also research that moves beyond standard socioeconomic variables that we often um, obtain through census data. What do we really know, for example, about how different citizenship regulations, broader public understandings of nationhood, or traditions of national pride versus more exclusionary nationalist currents foster or constrain support for the populist right. We don't really know uh, very much uh, about that. Uh, though political scientists in Europe and North America who research attitudes to immigration and minorities now often do so through a multi-level lens, there is a striking lack of research on how the performance of the populist right, uh, especially uh, at local and regional levels, um, has been shaped by the surrounding ethnic context. There are some exceptions that perhaps point to um, avenues for future research. Recent work in Sweden, for example, has suggested that the populist right is often strongest in more economically disadvantaged neighbourhoods, but in particular in largely ethnically homogenous districts that are found on the outskirts of more diverse, larger uh, conurbations, the so-called halo or donut effect. In Britain, our own research has shown how the populist right has tended to prosper similarly in areas that have low average levels of education, but which in particular are often on the border of larger, more ethnically diverse areas where there are settled Muslim minority populations of Pakistani or African uh, uh, origin. But it remains striking how little work there is that moves beyond the individual level to explore the relationship between what this conference is partly focused on population change, whether at the national, regional, or local level, how reactions to this change are shaped by deeper nationalist subcurrents and traditions, and in turn, how this influences support for populist right parties. It seems to me, at least, that this is one clear area where the study of ethnicity and nationalism uh, can make an important contribution. Secondly, for much of the past 15 years, Studies of the populist right have tended to remain overwhelmingly preoccupied with the party level. There are numerous studies now that examine the role of agency in explaining the varying fortunes of populist right parties, uh, why some are more successful than others 
why some survive and others die, and why there is so much overall in Europe cross-national variation in their support. After more than 40 years of experimentation with its ideological appeal, its organization, and its leadership, the populist right has recognized the importance of agency. It's downplayed cruder and more explicitly ethnic nationalist appeals in favor of a more nuanced narrative of ethno-pluralism or cultural difference. In recent years, countless studies have documented this shift, often focusing almost exclusively on the so-called supply side of the debate. And this was natural and at the time should have been applauded. It was a response to a call in the late 1990s and early 2000s uh, by scholars such as Roger Eatwell or Cass Müller to devote more attention to the internal workings of populist right parties and how they compete within party systems. The primary unit of analysis thus became the party and as a literature we became largely um, not necessarily obsessed but very interested in the internal uh, organization uh, and, in, and getting inside the black box of, of populist right politics. Recent studies, for example, have shown that populist right parties that are rooted in explicitly fascist or neo-Nazi uh, uh, traditions have tended to score lower levels of support at the ballot box compared with those parties that are rooted in more diverse ideological currents in which draw on more diverse uh, 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 traditions of nationalism. Others have pointed to the role of ideological positioning, observing how populist right parties increasingly now in Europe, uh, because we're dealing with parties that are sometimes supporting national governments or which have participated in national coalitions, um, we now have research that has shown how they tend to tone down uh, their populist anti-establishment attacks after terms in office. And the literature has also shown how, when it comes to the issue of immigration and ethnic diversity, populist right parties tend to frame migrants and minorities in particular as a threat, drawing on ethnic competition theory, whether to national identity, social order, employment, or the welfare state. But here again, there are many gaps within this literature, and it seems to be recycling itself and uh, uh, asking the same questions over and over again. Uh, there are questions now that we still are unable to answer convincingly. For example, we know little about how the framing of immigration and ethnic diversity differs according to national traditions and the type of nation states um, and, and the local and regional context in which these parties are operating. And more specifically, and I think particularly important given some of the papers that have been delivered at this conference, um, the heavy focus on the political party uh, within the literature and the populist right has drawn our attention away from how populist right actors also interact with non-electoral uh, nationalist movements and subcultures and how these might inhibit or encourage support for the programs of the populist right. Look, for example, at the interaction between the more formal uh, populist right party structures in eastern Germany uh, with a long tradi uh, tradition of non-electoral mobilization within that area and which is now becoming far more salient uh, in the shadow of the refugee crisis. Or look at the interaction between more formal party actors in Hungary, such as Jobbik, and other movements in Eastern Europe, which are often linked intimately with broader subcurrents in civil society or the so-called dark side of civic mobilization. There is almost no work um, 
within the uh, literature on populist right parties uh, as it stands that has really explored those relationships in detail and sought to uh, examine what role those non-electoral arenas play in mobilizing support uh, for these parties. One notable example and an exception in the uh, literature has been the work of political sociologist Jack Vugelers at the University of Toronto, who uncovered a significant relationship between modern-day electoral support for the National Front in France and the local presence of nostalgic voluntary associations that celebrated France's colonial past. In contrast, Vugelers found that support for the FN was weaker in areas where there were voluntary associations, but associations that exposed their participants to cross-cutting influences. This associational involvement in bounded nationalist groups, he argued, was an important, though completely neglected, aspect in explanations of cross-regional variation in support for the FN. And it points towards an interesting, though overlooked, avenue for future research. There's been very little else that's taken uh, that in-depth and rich local-level uh, approach to uh, looking at the role of non-electoral uh, organizations and factors in support for the populist right. Another example is our research uh, on membership recruitment to populist right parties, which was influenced in turn by earlier work undertaken here at the LSE in the early 1980s by Christopher Husbands, who showed how contemporary support for the now defunct National Front had been disproportionately strong in districts in London's East End that had a long tradition of exclusionary political mobilization stretching as far back to the turn of the 20th century with groups such as the British Brothers League. Husbands pointed to how support for the National Front was often much stronger in areas that had over time and over generations been consistently exposed to uh, open forms of, of essentially ethnic nationalism. In our own study, we uh, showed, uh, we, we produced consistent findings with, with Husbands' work, which was published in 1983, showing how current membership support for the successor movement to the National Front, the British National Party, had uh, been significantly higher in localities that during the 1970s and 1980s had been uh, exposed to consistent campaigns by the National Front. Uh, and similar uh, uh, populist right uh, organizations. And that was while we controlled for local social, economic, and political characteristics. So this area of non-electoral mobilization, looking at how mass support for the populist right is supported or hindered by other actors in civil society, local tr traditions and subcultures, is another area where I would suggest that the study of ethnicity and nationalism uh, which has a more developed tradition of ethnographic uh, and qualitative research, is ideally positioned uh, to contribute. A third and final strand of research uh, concerns individual voters. There are now perhaps hundreds of studies in the literature on the populist right that investigate, often in individual case studies and at individual sets of, el of elections, the social and attitudinal profile of populist right party voters we now uh, know a lot uh, about who these uh, people are, uh, what they think, and where they come from. We have dozens of studies, perhaps hundreds, that variously investigate the gender gap in electoral support for the populist right, trying to explain why men dominate their electorates, the role of religiosity, social class, parental socialization, social isolation, social capital, 
And much of this has focused on the role of immigration concerns in electoral mobilization. Time and time again, research has shown how immigration skepticism, the desire to reduce levels of immigration, is one of the main predictors of whether somebody will lend their vote to a populist right party. You get the election study, run a logistic regression, and consistently find that voters who want to end immigration or reduce the number of immigrants are significantly more likely to support these parties than those who think otherwise. We know that. We don't need to keep doing it over and over again. These effects typically remain significant uh, after we control for other factors. But what, sort of, what I think needs to be looked at in more detail is the underlying nature of that opposition to immigration, how people conceive of their uh, nationalist uh, beliefs, their sense of belonging, and how uh, those understandings in turn are amplified uh, or constrained by uh, their surrounding national culture um, and their surrounding, uh, effectively, uh, state. Often our measurement of how immigration concerns drive support for the populist right is simply looking at uh, preference for more restrictive immigration policies or negative feelings toward the perceived effects of immigration or a measure of prejudice such as the belief that some groups are superior or inferior to others. But it seems to me, at least, that we have not fully explored how this negative outgroup bias is shaped um, and, and how it is influenced. And there's also work here for social psychologists who have also remained quite detached from uh, this literature. But I think it's in terms of people's broader formulation of their ethnic and national identity, which is where the study of ethnicity and nationalism can also contribute. And there are two specific areas with two minutes left where I could see some interesting work. One concerns the role of social norms uh, in support for the populist right. Recent experimental work has taken as its cue research on post-war Europe and the civil rights movement in the United States to show how more virulent and blatant forms of ethnic nationalism and racism only garner support from the very margins of society. Adapting research from social psychology this research on the populist right has shown how an internal motivation to control prejudice, i.e. when individuals want to avoid to be seen as being prejudiced, even to themselves, can have a significant effect on reducing support for these political organizations. The empirical evidence gathered so far from only two European states suggests that voters are simultaneously pulled in one direction by their internal motivation to control their own prejudice but from another direction by their desire to voice hostility toward perceived outgroups or to voice their support for more restrictive immigration policies. But it is not clear at all how what, are often referred to as the, what is often referred to as the anti-racism norm is in turn affected by the ethnic context in which these voters are embedded or by the national uh, tradition or uh, the national culture or national history. It may well be, for example, that these social norms are especially influential in highly developed Western states, but less so in uh, East, Eastern or Central European states where social liberalism is less entrenched and there is a longer tr tradition of authoritarian uh, rule. But this interaction between history, political culture and electoral behavior uh, has escaped uh, a serious attention and warrants uh, further research. The second area within this sort of broader uh, uh, topic uh, relates to um, the need to disentangle the relative importance of xenophobia, racism, and a more diffuse sense of skepticism toward immigration. 
One of the only empirical studies uh, in the literature on the populist right to look at this by political sociologist Jens Ridgren was based on European social survey data. Uh, and Ridgren suggests that whereas ethnic nationalism may dominate at the populist right party level in terms of their ideologies and their programs, when it comes to populist right voters, uh, xenophobic attitudes are actually less significant in predicting uh, who will support these parties than immigration scepticism. As Ridgren argues, interpretations of the populist right that merely frame its support as a reflection of xenophobia should be met with caution. While undoubtedly voters who hold xenophobic views are drawn to such parties, it also appears that they are appealing to voters who are more generally unhappy about the prevailing immigration policy, who believe that immigration is too high, and Ridgren suggests uh, would, uh, would lead us to the conclusion that xenophobia is an important but secondary role in explaining what, what uh, is continuing to drive these parties forward. In summary, therefore, um, what I'm essentially saying is that while the literature on the populist right has not engaged um, as much as it should have done with the literature on uh, ethnicity and nationalism, um, the same could be said uh, from the other side. And there are clearly many areas where collaboration between these two uh, bodies of work uh, could actually in turn help us answer a number of unresolved questions um, about what is uh, causing support for the populist right, what is sustaining uh, support for the populist right, and what influence these parties are having uh, on the world around them, uh, whether the immediate neighbourhood, uh, whether their region, uh, or whether their broader society. Um, and I've hopefully identified three uh, interesting avenues, um, but I could well have uh, identified uh, many more. But thank you for listening. Thanks very much, Matt. And uh, next we have uh, Anna Triandafilidou, who will be speaking on globalization, migration, and the nation. Which one is mine? Uh, it's this one. It's there, yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay. Well, uh, hello, everybody. Uh, well, thank you. As, as uh, also Matthew said, thank you for being here in such a fine afternoon at the end of a three-day conference. That's quite, um, that shows quite some, uh, how can I say, dedication to the topic of nationalism. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, Eric and several other people in this room are long-term friends. I'm, uh, uh, I've been involved with ASIN nearly 20 years ago when I was a postdoc at the LSE, and it's a great pleasure to be back here and see that ASIN is up, is you know, uh, thriving. And actually, the ASIN conference I think has become a landmark of nationalism studies every year. And people like you all and some of the people that have already left do travel from different uh, countries to come here as a rendezvous. Uh, you know, to discuss the uh, upcoming issues of ethnicity and nationalism. And although I started my, my interest uh, in nationalism more from the migration perspective, looking at how migration affects national identity rather than the other way around, 
Um, I find that in, in the later years, there's really migration and nationalism and ethnicity are being brought together in many ways with the rise of the far-right parties, but also with the current refugee crisis. Actually, even migration and asylum studies are being brought together. So I think we, we are witnessing really um, a, a reorganization of our research field. Trying to um, put some, some order to, to my thoughts in this field and trying to answer in a way slightly differently from, from what Matthew has done, but in reality I think we're looking at the same problem. I have been asking myself what does globalization do to the nation, what does intensified mobility do to the nation, and why is, do we witness a return to the national? Why is it? Because actually in reality we should have expected that globalization, intensified connectedness, you know, increased mobility, um, actually the new directions of the new origins and the new directions where people go, the new types of migration, um, you know, all this interconnectedness that we're witnessing should have really led to a certain, you know, uh, if not the solution kind of toning down of national identity. And in, instead we're seeing something different. So this is really a question that I have posed to myself in the last uh, couple of years and what I've, I'm presenting today is really work in progress. I'm trying to, to also develop my thoughts. Now, if we look at the relationship between globalization and the nation, we see that globalization affects the nation and the nation state in, in sometimes opposed and even it might seem contradictory ways. So globalization on one hand creates what has been called already in the, in the 70s the global village. So we do see that there are similarities in youth cultures, in music cultures, in um, you know, a, a lot of identity, cultural trends that are communicated today very fast through the new IT technologies. So it seems that we're witnessing what also has been called the McDonaldization or the Americanization of global culture. At the same time, this very globalization and the global interconnectedness that has very important also social and economic aspects is bringing increased diversity. Now it seems that countries are more than ever enmeshed in the, the, the flows of migration, and also of asylum seeking as senders, receivers, transit places. Now, um, there's been a long literature on how uh, the nation state has, has, to, has had to surrender a lot of its sovereignty to international institutions, but at the same time, what we witness today in Britain in particular, but not only in Britain, in several other European countries, is that the nation state is seen as the main provider, the main provider for work, the main provider for welfare, and that's where you have to defend your interests and your rights. And last but not least, at the symbolic or at the identity level, on one hand, um, we have really a very rich literature. I'm particularly fond of Bauman's analysis, but it's not just Bauman, it's Castles, it's even Richard Sennett, um, you know, about how the post-industrial world creates a sense of insecurity, of fluidity, of liquidity, so that people really, really lose their anchors which anchors were previously their sense of community that could be ethnic, religious, but also professional, work-related ident work identities. And now we, uh, we, we see that people just lose these anchors. At the same time, there is the opposite thing, that we're no longer tied to our ascribed identities. We can pick and choose. And, and that's also very much um, a topic that has been studied in migration and in multiculturalism studies, how people can reinvent their 
for instance, inherited identity, their parents' uh, place of origin with the lives that they live that can be very diverse, very multicultural, um, how they can really embrace their religion but also reinvent it, how they can mix and choose between their being, for instance, me being Greek, being a woman, uh, living in Italy, I don't know, being a professional and so on. So globalization both creates a sense of insecurity and at the same time gives power to people to select their identity. So where does this leave us then? It's like, you know, it depends on the, on the branch of literature that you read to say what is the relationship between globalization and the nation. And it, it, it occurs to me, I mean, or at least my argument is that the connecting link, the catalyst probably between globalization and the nation is international migration, which has changed both in quantity and in quality in the last 20, 25 years. It's changed in, in, in the way um, the migration systems, or if you want, the migration flows and networks are organized. So we are past the post-colonial ties that were characterized in post-war migrations in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. We are now seeing new origins, new places of origin, and new destinations. And actually, we see, for instance, Bangladesh is going to Italy or Greece, but we also see... Um, for instance, uh, well, Greeks as well, but also Romanians and Bulgarians going to the UK. So we see really mixtures of flows. We see countries that previously had no um, historical, no economic, no social or cultural connections becoming connected with these international migration flows. Uh, another issue that has really come to focus in the last five or at the most ten years is what I said before, this mixing of asylum seeking and international um, economically motivated migration. I remember if somebody asked me, really, five years ago, do you work on asylum? I'd say, no, I don't work on asylum. Asylum is about lawyers and human rights. And today, if somebody asks me, I say, yes, actually, I work also on asylum because the two are somehow inseparable. And we no longer speak of what used to be mixed flows. So in the same flow of people, you have people who are motivated by economic reasons and people who are motivated by, well, who, who flee persecution. But today we speak of mixed motivations. Uh, I even propose to say, you know, if you come from Afghanistan these days, you're probably 80% an asylum seeker and 20% you have also motivations related to building a better future for you and your children. If you come from Syria, you're probably 100% an asylum seeker. If you come from Nigeria, it depends on the region where you come from, and maybe you are 20% asylum seeker, 80% economic migrant. But this is really um, you know, a new development, and it is um, a challenge for research, but also a challenge for policy. Now, another issue is, I mean, there's been a lot of theorizing about relative deprivation and how international migration changes communities of origin, so that when you probably, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure many of you are aware of these theories, that when migration starts from a community, particularly from a developing country, the households receive remittances, they become better off, and they upset the local uh, socioeconomic hierarchy. So then they motivate even the wealthier households to send people abroad so they can compete. Now, the thing today which, um, which we're witnessing and I think which has to be linked to the theories that I mentioned before about wider sociological transformations like those that Senate, Castles, and Bauman are theorizing is that we are all, in a way, comparing ourselves not just to our communities, not just to our towns or our countries or to our 
um, how can I say, socioeconomic stratum in which we live, we tend to compare uh, ourselves with anyone. I mean, uh, we get a lot more information about how people live in other countries and in other places. We get a lot of pictures. We can imagine what it is. And this counts, of course, for international migrants for de from developing regions who have ideas about what life is like in uh, say Europe or North America or Australia and elsewhere or even in, you know, in the Gulf states. Uh, but also our group of reference becomes very fluid. It becomes the international community. And as Bauman says, it's, it's a bit like the concept of fitness. He says fitness is something you'll never achieve. You always strive for fitness, but it's not a status that you can achieve. It's a bit the same. You can always be better off. So you, you have... Um, a different mechanism, both socioeconomic and, if you want, political and psychological, that characterizes, in my view, international migration. So that's why I'm saying that I think international migration is, is a catalyst in the relationship between globalization and the nation. Uh, but then, how is it that the nation, um, you know, suddenly uh, remains or comes back with a vengeance, strikes back, it is still relevant. I think, in a way, the nation comes as a deus ex machina. It, it still comes to provide answers to all these challenges that, as I said, I think are both qualitatively and quantitatively different. I'm not saying they're bigger. Probably people in, you know, 50 years ago had bigger challenges. They had more poverty, more illiteracy, you know, more diseases, lived less long, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think uh, the challenges that we're facing today are just different. Now, I think national identity still has the power to provide for an answer to our existential and our social need for belonging to some group of reference. And I think the nation probably lends itself more than religion because it is more demarcated, it is smaller. Religion has always the promise of universalism, of universality that is, is, is probably strong and makes identification um, important but still not necessarily providing for the concrete uh, you know, solidity that we need in this very dynamic and mobile and transnational world where we live. Now, second thing is that still no matter how um, economies are integrated, countries are actually integrated in the global economy, um, we, we, I mean, globalization at that level, at the economic level or at the, the labor market level, is mediated still by the national state because our welfare systems are national and our labor markets are even national and regional and local. So still our lives are very much embedded at the national level. And actually what we're seeing, and, and probably the EU is a good case in point, is where regional schemes were, for, were seen to provide for the answer, the, you know, the cushion between globalization and, and people, they don't seem to be succeeding very much. So it's interesting to see that both in the Eurozone crisis but also in the current refugee crisis, there is a feeling that the, the nation state has, has more the control. Now, of course, we can debate whether this is, this is true or not. Now, turning to Europe, what is special about Europe and how there is this um, whole return of the national being framed? Um, I think we need very much to, to ground our analysis to post-1989 Europe, and probably we have not uh, done this sufficiently. I think post-1989 um, Europe is a very particular uh, you know, historical phase for Europe. A, because we have the end of the clear left versus right wing divisions with the, the implosion of the communist systems in, in 
um, in Russia and the former Soviet Union and well, the world around the world, we have this feeling, which, however, you know, we, we have critically revised by now after 25 years, but there is this feeling that the, the, the right and the left do not make sense. And actually, even when you, you ask EU citizens who come from the former communist uh, countries, they say, I don't feel comfortable in talking about terms uh, of right wing and left wing, because what does this mean exactly? Now, uh, the other thing is by doing away with this uh, competition between basically uh, the US and Western Europe uh, on one hand and Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union on the other, we, we have been left without a clear other uh, from which to distinguish ourselves, our economic system, our social system, our political system. And I think that it is no coincidence that Muslim communities in Europe, and particularly, but also the Roma, are emerging as, are emerging as an important other. Um, and they are emerging probably at the European level because they're present in many countries and because the whole of now, the now reunited Europe is looking for some others from which to di differentiate and on which to clarify its identity. And, and last but not least, I think that the last 25 years have been characterized by intense, in, well, which is now intra-EU, but before it was not intra-EU, it was intra-European mobility, initially east to west, then also south to north during the Eurozone crisis, and now um, again both east to west and south to north, east to south. Um, Intra-EU mobility, interestingly, has become uh, numerically very important in the countries that we call old host countries, like Britain, like France, uh, like the Netherlands, Sweden, Germany, Austria, countries that were um, used to have non-European migrants, but not EU citizens who can move freely and, and uh, establish themselves. At the same time, we see that some of the post-colonial, so-called post-colonial migrants that these countries had are now going, for instance, to Southern Europe. Um, as I said, we have Bangladeshis and Pakistanis going to, uh, we have Indians going to Italy. So there is um, a different, you know, migration and mobility and diversity landscape that is emerging in Europe and that I think is favoring the return to the national. Now, uh, I will try to give some examples of specific countries and how um, they, are re they are reacting to the recent crisis or the recent challenges that they're facing and uh, to showcase how they privilege still the national frame as an answer uh, to, to the difficulties they're facing. So, Taking as a first example Germany, which is a country that has seen to lead Europe in many ways in, in the last couple of decades after its re reunification. Um, Germany has been, you know, a book, uh, uh, a textbook case of ethnic nationalists, but has reformed after year 2000 its citizenship, making it more civic and making integration its buzzword. But integration understood through school and through the labor market and, and you know, abandoning the idea that people were guest workers and accepting that they were there to stay. Nonetheless, you know, 25 years after German reunification, we still witness differences between the Eastern and the, and the Western uh, lender, uh, differences in salary levels, differences in employment rates, and certainly differences in their attitudes towards diversity. It's no wonder the Pegida movement, which is, I suppose is part of your, of your, of your studies, is really, I mean, originates from Eastern uh, lender. 
Now, what is interesting, and, and Germany has found itself in the eye of the storm um, in relation to the refugee crisis. What is interesting is that first, um, uh, other member states are asking for Germany to lead Europe, so they're, they're asking one country, one nation, to take a leading role. Of course, it's a country that is important in, in many ways, and it's a big country. But they're asking this country to lead um, Europe in this crisis, but also Germans are turning to the national level to, to find solutions to problems that are actually transnational, like the refugee crisis. Um, a second case, I think, very obvious is Britain, the UK. Um, the, the UK, I think, is one of the few countries that perhaps not in rhetorics but actually in policies has stuck, you know, has remained with its multicultural citizenship conception that was celebrated in the, very much in the 90s, but has also um, given more emphasis into the civic integration model, making, uh, for instance, citizenship acquisition ceremonies more important, requiring the, long, the, no, the you know, no, good knowledge of English for people who want to naturalize, but still insisting on multiculturalism. <coughs> Britain seems to be facing, seems to, to having a harder time uh, dealing with uh, European integration and with this increased in trade mobility, which saw Britain on the receiving end, um, you know, much more than what was expected by uh, actually UK, the UK government at the time, but also by other member states, including, for instance, Germany or Austria, who thought that all the polls would go, uh, would go there. What is interesting that during these last 10 years and the challenge of the global financial crisis that has hardly hit Britain, uh, the challenge of UKIP, uh, you know, Eurosceptics, people wanting uh, Britain to, to exit, the devolution of Scotland and the referendum never ending. Again, the solution, I mean, or the rhetorics of the, 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 both the Labour Party and the Conservatives have been mostly uh, framed at the national level. You probably remember that Ed Miliband had proposed this concept of one nation, trying to bypass the question of ethnic and religious diversity, saying one nation in the sense of um, no, I mean, no uh, social inequality, where in one nation we have to guarantee equality and welfare for all in Britain. Um, the Conservatives also, David Cameron, have, has spoken of muscular uh, liberalism, and again the framing was very much national. And, and nowadays we're witnessing a campaign about Brexit that is very much focused on, on, uh, you know, on the national frame, on UK, UK's independence or interdependence with the EU and whether Brexit is good or not. So while, for instance, uh, the whole of Europe is faced with international terrorism, jihadist terrorism, religious diversity has been on the forefront for the past, again, um, 15 years, I would say, we see still that the emphasis is put on the national level. And take my, uh, my own country of origin, Greece, um, probably a peripheral, you know, a small case study compared to the others, but still an interesting one, not least, because it's been, it has faced in, in very harsh terms both the Eurozone crisis and is still struggling with it, but also um, the refugee crisis, given its geographical um, position. Now... Greece, uh, very much like Germany, had a, a concept of an ethnic nation and a nation that was ethnically homogenous. Obviously, this concept has been modified through the last 25 years as Greece has witnessed important uh, immigration, particularly from Albania, but also from other uh, Central and Eastern European countries, including also from Asia. Uh, 
And gradually, I would say, the, the, the national self-concept has opened up. Uh, the country had also um, flirted and, and adopted with a very European concept of Greece as, you know, as a country that is relatively affluent, politically stable, uh, you know, belonging to the EU with the enlargement. Greece suddenly was very much in the center. It was no longer the last corner in the map. And then the 2009-2010 crisis came, the global financial and the Eurozone crisis, and, and quite quickly also the refugee crisis came. Uh, it is interesting there, again, that answers are mixed, and we have seen, however, a reframing of intolerance in terms of Muslim migrants actually suddenly in the last three or four years when people from Muslim countries like Afghans or Pakistanis or Bangladeshis has become, have become more visible, and while the country was facing an, a, a really a very harsh socioeconomic crisis, the framing of the problem became very strongly national. So there was a, what, what I, with another colleague, we have called a nationalist intolerance towards diversity. Um, these people are different. They don't have gender equality, as if gender equality was a quintessential feature of, of Greek identity. Or they, you know, they don't have the same values as us. Um, we, cannot, we cannot accept them. And uh, um, we, we again see that despite Greece having a really weak state, the national framing uh, for facing both the adversities of what is perceived as uh, the adversities of European integration and globalization remains the nation. So to, to conclude, what I'm trying to say is that we, we are witnessing a, a, a nearly paradoxical trend where countries are ever more integrated in the global economy and in the global trade, and particularly in, Euro, in Europe we have also the common currency that obliges countries to be fully integrated um, in the European economy with everything that this brings, both negative uh, and positive aspects. We have increased and further diversified types of migration. What I said before, we have the old hosts receiving new intra-EU migrants and the new hosts receiving what could be conceived as the old migrants from developing countries in Asia and in Africa. We have mixed motivations, flows that we cannot say, are they economically motivated? Are, they, um, are, are these people seeking international protection? We have, in the last few years, again, a renewal of uh, you know, challenges related to international terrorism and particularly, uh, you know, fundamentalist terrorism. And we are also witnessing, however, a, an increased level of transnational solidarity. And this is also something that I would like, I haven't yet uh, managed to study properly, but I would like to, to, to look at it a bit more closely, because while we, we are having... Um, you know, these negative aspects of globalization, we're also having a level of transnational solidarity that has been witnessed at the period of 2011 with the Arab Spring and with a lot of citizen, citizen mobilization, not only in, in North Africa, but also in different parts of Europe in terms of solidarity with the people that were revolting, but also now with Syria, with the terrorist um, events of Paris, both in January 2015 and in November 2015, and now with Brussels, we have this, this constant um, interconnected as, as if something, um, you probably remember the, the, the slogan, we are all uh, Charlie, uh, we're all, uh, je suis Charlie, 
which showed that people at the same time uh, want to be involved in, you know, in, in, in issues that they perceive as transnational. And it is interesting that the, n despite um, these uh, transnational challenges, still uh, the citizens are looking for stability and are looking for solidity and for answers at the national level, both at the level of national identity and, and the nation state. And I think we need, I mean, it is my contention that it is probably the national level that is coming back neither anymore as um, an answer, well, it, it is neither being, uh, I can say, undermined by globalization nor being reinforced as, as uh, it had been argued that, for instance, globalization has saved the nation state, actually, because um, it has, it has uh, made it clear that it was not the fault of the nation state for what was happening. But rather, the, na the nation state and national uh, identity are coming in a much more reflexive and interactive way, seeking to address the challenges that people feel, both at the economic and at the identity level. And this is my partial answer to what is happening about globalization, migration, and the nation. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, Anna. Um, we have got, uh, looks like about 15 minutes or so for questions, which would, should leave enough time for uh, John Bruley to come on at the end. Um, so, uh, we have Atsuko and, yeah, go ahead. Thank you very much. It was a very thorough uh, two papers that it, I think are very stimulating. Um, I think this question is mainly really, um, addressed to Anna's um, argument, but also I think it has something to do with the, the relation, you know, why people turn to uh, right-wing populist politics, etc., etc. Uh, I think what I'm trying to, to ask is for your comment that the losers of globalizations are at the same time, those people who are failed by the nation state system as well. Mm -hmm. They were not trained well, or they're not educated well, or they're not supported well, etc., etc. Um, so why would they turn to nation state? Or, or is it the framework is nation rather than nation state? And given that the political engagement, this level of political disengagement, it's still quite high. I mean, worrying, worryingly high, except in the Scottish referendum. Um, so, kind of wondering if you had any comments on this aspect. On the, uh, yes. Okay, we have one over here. Yeah, I had a question about, you had talked about at the end of your talk, um, and it sounded like you were opening this up as an empirical question in terms of uh, what role the social norms of sort of uh, anti-racist, uh, or anti-racism, what role that plays in terms of some of these narratives. And, and, and I was curious if you could just, and again, I, I like that leaving it open as an empirical question. I was wondering if you could, I just want to hear your thoughts on, uh, on 
sort of whether or not you think that's an effective strategy. And I, I'm just trying to think in terms of, you know, if there's one thing that this election cycle in the U.S. has taught us is that uh, calling people racist doesn't appear to slow things down at all, right? I mean, sort of Trump's support just seems to grow. Um, uh, and so I was just curious in terms of, and, and the reason why I ask is because there does seem to be this different discourse in terms of... Um, there are certain things that we think is perfectly legitimate to discriminate against in terms of national membership. So if somebody says, you know, uh, non-citizens can't vote in elections, nobody, nobody raises an eyebrow. You know, non-citizens can't vote in national elections. That doesn't seem problematic to most people. And so, but if you said, you know, women can't vote in this election, I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, that, that changes the narrative in a fundamentally different way in the same way if, uh, if we said, you know, African Americans uh, can't vote. And so I was just curious if you could speak about, you know, the, you know how effective you think that narrative is, how, you know, what role does that play? And, and, and I, know, I mean, it really is, I apologize, it's asking you to speak on something that you said as a question, so I'll, I'll, I'll apologize beforehand. So I just wanted to get that out there. Okay. We have, we can maybe have you guys, oh, is there one? Wait, ah. Oh, we've got them popping up all over the place. Okay, go ahead. Uh, just, uh, just a quick question about um, populism and the rise of populist parties. Um, I was wondering uh, what your views are concerning um, populism being a response to neoliberalism, the, disgr the disgruntled lower-middle income class, uh, which comprises the majority of the population, uh, seeing it as the only response to neoliberal ideologies which have been around for a long time, and really there has been no counter-solution. And this um, populism seems to be um, the only solution. And many populist parties, uh, when they do get power or when they're trying to get power, they often have uh, strong social programs. And one of the f first, uh, their first agendas often include breaking down centralized banking systems within the countries. Um, so possibly just a little bit about that uh, populism and neoliberalism. So we'll just stick with three for this round and then we'll come for another set. Yeah. So who wants to go first? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thank you for your uh, questions. On, uh, on the, on the um, anti-racism norm uh, question, uh, I, I think this is something that is very intriguing um, as an avenue for researchers to explore. It comes mainly from social psychology, and I think there's a really exciting interplay at the moment between the study of electoral behavior and uh, which has not really gone into personality um, and psychology in a big way, but is now beginning to, to head down that road quite quickly. Um, it's certainly not, um, that work has not made its way into the literature on, on the radical right in a big way. Um, and the interesting part um, of the, uh, uh, for me about the research on social norms is that it would suggest that the relative success of these parties um, is influenced heavily by the surrounding political culture in which they operate, and political scientists aren't very good at grappling with things like culture, either national or political, and it forces us to think about other things that may be influencing people's decision when they go into the polling booth. And in that particular experiment, which came out in, I think it was last year in the American Journal of political science, which was Scott Eversflaten, uh, sorry, Scott 
Blinda and Elizabeth Evers Flarton um, and Rob Ford uh, essentially showed that um, when you when you remind people of the anti-racism norm in society they they often uh, essentially constrain some of their uh, their prejudice largely because they don't want to be seen to be prejudiced by others but they also don't want them to be seen to be prejudiced themselves there's a kind of internal impulse a button that we all press at certain points not just in it might not be in this area it could be in other areas such as gender inequality for example where you know where you sometimes you know you see candidates speaking and some candidates don't hold themselves back and others uh, others do um, and I'm interested in in whether we can use that as, as a bridge between literatures and looking at, well, what is it that makes these norms especially powerful in certain contexts and less powerful in others? Because I think, for example, a case like Sweden is interesting at the moment. On the one hand, you've got one of the most liberal uh, states in Europe grappling with the refugee crisis, but on the other hand, for the first time in you know, a long time, they're dealing also with a very electorally significant radical right party, and I think that's a great laboratory where you can sort of begin to look at maybe how these social norms are working out. Um, but just a sort of shorter answer to the second question, um, I'm, never, I'm never entirely sure what, I mean, I, I get where you're going with it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a sort of counter-reaction to neoliberalism. Rather, I mean, if you look at, say, the work of Hans-Peter Creasy or Daniel uh, uh, Usch uh, in Switzerland, or before then, Ron, Ron Inglehart um, was really the first in this area, that essentially the argument was that the old um, left-right uh, capital labour cleavage that dominated European politics for 120 years has become less uh, relevant, uh, particularly during the 1990s, as higher levels of migration and diversity have changed the rules of the game, essentially, and have made cultural and identity issues far more salient for voters. Um, and people, people obviously might not agree with that thesis, but it presents the populist right essentially as a backlash, uh, a, a value-based backlash among particular social groups who, firstly, don't like the libertarian... Uh, move to individual choice and um, you know sexual freedoms, gender equality, etc., uh, and also um, have have uh, have themselves a desire to push back, as, or, or what Piero Ignazio would call a silent counter revolution to to that uh, the rise of the sort of so-called new left in the 70s and 80s, and they very much view the populist right as a delayed response to that revolution, um, that early revolution. And, and it would certainly suggest that, um, you know, whether on the radical left or the radical right, which, you know, what they now increasingly share is an emphasis on economic protectionism. If you look, for example, at Le Pen at the moment now saying again that she wants to pull France out of the Eurozone um, and sort of, you know, strip back, um, strip back the power of big banks and big business, something, interestingly, which isn't shared by the radical right in Britain, which has always been actually quite liberal in its economic position, whereas in France and, and Austria it's been different. Um, but I think that, that, that is an intriguing uh, thesis, but is, no, is by no means a consensus 
uh, in the literature. But it does force us to take things like values more seriously and cultural, uh, the cultural cleavage more seriously. And it takes us a little bit away from the sort of conventional wisdom in the popular debate, which is that essentially this is just about scarce resources and competition over housing and, and that sort of ethnic competition literature, which I, I don't quite think, and I'm happy to be wrong on this, but I don't quite think it's got into the, the cultural terrain as much as it as it's got into the more sort of economic uh, terrain. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, I want to say something about um, uh, populism. Uh, I have some trouble with uh, Hans-Peter Kreis's approach because um, I think we need to understand more how is the right-wing and left-wing populism different. And probably you're right in saying, okay, it's... Um, it's a response to neoliberalism in some ways, but I think we need to understand more in what ways is Syriza or Ciudadanos or Podemos populist or the five-star movement in Italy, and it is still very different, I think, from the populism of Marine Le Pen and others and UKIP, etc. And as you said, I think the, uh, the neoliberal versus more uh, social um, dimension, social equality dimension is another cross-cutting dimension. Now, uh, this of course relates to the losers and the winners of globalization and you're very right, yeah, truly, the losers of globalization are probably the losers of the nation-state uh, but I think probably exactly that's the answer that uh, for globalization, who do you address? You have no one to address, it's exactly uh, the socioeconomic transformation that leaves the individual very free but also very vulnerable. And so if you are to, to look for answers, um, you're, you're still looking for answers. I think uh, your ethnic group is too small and probably has no political power while the nation still provides a framework. And I think still in many ways, and, and, and there is also this current in nationalism studies of everyday nationalism, not so much banal nationalism, but everyday nationalism, that says, you know, we still live very much in a nationalist framework. That, but, but you're right in, in, in pointing this out. Okay, I think we've got time for uh, another round. We have you, and then we'll go one, two, and three. How's that? Go ahead, yeah. I was just wondering if you could say more about um, transnational communities, um, particularly the rise of diasporas. So, uh, what sort of concerns me is globalization offers uh, different ways of conceptualizing political community other than the nation state. Um, so if your case studies are focused on nation states, then the answer will always seem to be, um, you know, that we, we have, the return is back to the nation state. But particularly if you're talking about, let's say, Bangladeshi and Pakistani migrants to Italy, uh, to what extent do they... Uh, identify with the nation state of origin or to a transnational community such as the UMA. So I think this is an interesting question um, which, which looks at the different uh, levels of political community opened up by globalization. Thank you. Thanks. Go ahead. Best to record. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so my question is for you, Matt. Um, I'm actually very fascinated about the whole far-right-wing politics, although I've never studied it. And I just have this idea that, as you said, far-right politics are not actually influencing politics the way we might have projected like a couple of years ago. But I just think that another interesting thing that might have not been actually examined is what is the relationship between how this far-right 
wing parties coming up are actually treated from the system. Because I come from Greece, so for us, like Golden Dawn, it was something that was, we didn't have to talk about it. I mean, it was a bubble. It was about to, you know, it will explode and that was it. But it's still here, it's still out there, and it's, if not like constant, it's growing. And I just think it's because we don't talk about these things that much. I mean, they are out there, but then I'm wondering if whether we actually give them a voice or the way they treat them as like actually being part of this or not being part of this has anything to do with whether they, they, they're here to stay or not. Okay, thank you. And one more over there. Hi, so Mr. Goodwin, uh, you have identified for us uh, a number of gaps in research, and one of those was, um, was to explore what shapes our attitudes towards uh, immigration far right. But I thought you would have done it in your book on UKIP when you've told us that this is the group called, you, you call uh, male, pale and stale, and those working class, blue color, few, few skills, a little education. So what else is there to explore? What shapes our attitudes? <coughs> okay. Um, why don't we go with that? Who wants to? Who wants to begin? Um, yeah. Very good point. <laughs> that if I go for the national, I'll find the national. Yeah. Point taken. But I, I think still, um, for instance, there is a growing body of literature on transnational uh, social protection, and it's still. I mean, it's supposedly against methodological nationalism, but it is. A lot of this transnational social protection has gone full round, and after having discussed, for instance, how migrant communities and diasporas um, uh, mobilize resources to provide for, um, you know, support for migrants, for people back home, etc. Now we're looking at how countries of origin are providing support, covering their immigrants abroad. So. I, I have the feeling that the national still remains very important. And on the other hand, I think we need also to say something that diasporas have become very fashionable, particularly in migration studies, because in a probably neoliberal understanding of international migrations, development has to happen through international migration and diasporas have to play a role in it. But there is a critical literature coming from Latin America which says, no, migration is the, the result of being integrated in the global economic system. And so, so it's, not, it's not the solution to a problem. It's the outcome of a problem that you have created before. So I think we need also a bit to deconstruct the role of diasporas as, uh, you know, the answer to all our problems. Well, thank you for the uh, questions. On the question of response, which is a really intriguing, um, intriguing uh, question. The literature went through something of a turn sort of between 2005, 2010, where um, my PhD supervisor at the time, Roger Eatwell, said that uh, in essence, you know, we're spending all of this time looking at individual supporters and individual parties, and we're not actually looking at how other parties are responding and also how um, uh, how broader other actors in society are responding to, to the populist ride. And if you just look back over recent history, you can see some really interesting examples. You know, for example, in 1999, um, uh, when Jörg Haider uh, and his party were invited into coalition government in Austria, 
and the EU imposed sanctions, diplomatic sanctions on, on Austria because it said, you know, categorically these parties should not be brought into power versus other experiences like Italy where you've had, for example, the Northern League in power and you've had uh, people like Gianfranco Fini take on positions. So we've got some interesting examples. Now, since then, people have gone out to look at how those different responses to populist radical right parties have impacted their support. And I'm thinking about people like Wouter uh, van der Brugge in the Netherlands uh, and the Amsterdam School, which is uh, sort of quite famous in this literature for churning out so many mainly quantitative articles on the, on the populist right. But in essence, what um, that work would suggest, and I think what you're hinting at, is that in cases where the uh, radical right has been systematically excluded from uh, political office, um, that those parties have become more radical, whereas those that have been brought into coalition have moderated uh, their ideological positions um, and often actually have, at least in the short term, experienced a significant decline in support thereafter. Now, not a permanent decline. Austria, again, is a great example of that, where the moment the Freedom Party entered coalition, its support collapsed, but now is back at, uh, at, at, at very high levels. Um, but I do think that, that there needs to be more work on that. And there's also actually a really interesting article by Michael Minkenberg uh, in, uh, I think, West European politics, where he looks at the local response to the National Front in France when it took control of four medium-sized towns, uh, mainly in the south of the country, and looked at how different looked at how the party was impacting upon local political culture in those areas and found that you know, there were, it was very different, essentially. In some areas, the FM was very proactive at removing left-wing literature from schools or banning halal in local, uh, local, uh, local primary schools. But in other areas, it's actually quite sort of centrist and more sort of pragmatic and, um, uh, and so on. But some interesting work there, but a lot more, I think, needs to be done, which brings me to the second question about voters. I think my my, my criticism essentially you know, is that, um, or also perhaps my observation, is that what we often tend to do within the literature uh, in, in, in electoral behavior is reduce the motivation for support, reduce the appeal of these parties to very simplistic, um, uh, very simplistic questions, very clear measures. I mean, you know, if, if, let me give you an example. If, if, if I were looking at why somebody voted, uh, voted for the far right in Britain uh, in, in the early 2000s and I were to do this through survey research, I'd probably end up using a question like, you know, do, you, um, do you feel that immigration has been negative or positive for Britain? Um, you know, very positive, somewhat positive very negative, uh, negative, very negative. And that would essentially give me a proxy for, oh, well, anti-immigration is clearly the motive. But at the same time, um, were I to embark on, say, um, a, a qualitative research project using life history interviews, which I did as my PhD, interviewing people as to why they were supporting the radical right, actually, you know, the motives were, were far broader and tapped into things like how they were conceiving, or how they were making sense of their own Britishness, um, how they were making sense of their in-group identity um, and took us a lot further, I think, into understanding the motivations that were pushing them in that direction that I don't think could be adequately picked up from if I was just looking at, say, the British election study, right? I mean, these were people who were talking about 
I mean, in my, my thesis, I mean, I was talking about narratives of survivalism. You know, they genuinely felt that they were facing cultural and racial extinction. You know, really sort of quite elaborate, quite almost apocalyptic um, uh, beliefs about their in-group and the future of, of that group. Um, and in that case, that was quite an extreme uh, party. Um, so so, so, so what, I'm, what I'm essentially saying is it's not just about voting, obviously. You know, there are other forms of mobilization within this area, a lot of street-based mobilization now. I'd say in Europe over the last five years has been a much more um, active uh, non-electoral movement within, within this area. If you look, for example, at what's happening in Finland in response to the refugee crisis with the sort of Sons of Odin and that kind of more subcultural response, or Pegida in Germany and earlier the so-called counter-jihad movements. So I guess I'm, I'm saying it isn't just about voters and it isn't just about the questions that we put on the surveys. I think we can get a much richer understanding if we just push ourselves into, into some other areas. Well, thank you uh, ver both very much. Um, uh, it's around this time that it's customary to invite uh, our cleanup hitter, uh, John Bruley, to come up and say a few words. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I found that, that was really good. Thank you. So, we've reached the end of the 26th ASIN annual conference on the theme of nationalism, migration and population change. And it's been a, an interesting and memorable conference, although what we might remember from it 20 years' time when our grandparents ask, what did you do in the 2016 ASIN conference? It might not be the intellectual stuff that we concentrate on. It may be in part due to the alarms and excursions yesterday, which gave us a fire, <laughs> took us out of the building, timed beautifully to give us a ringside seat of a splendid parade in honour of the Queen's 90th birthday, with trumpets blaring, the household cavalry with their plumes tossing, impeccably groomed, and that was just the horses, <laughs> and then the alfresco Lebanese buffet. Um, but, uh, population displacement and a certain amount of inducement of solidarity. <laughs> Fortunately, we were able to get back into Clement House and with a bit of squeezing to carry on with the entire programme as planned for the day, which brings us back to the conference. Clearly a very timely theme in light of current events, especially the focus on, on Europe and the Middle East, um, where there's been a lot of concern, of course, and not just there. This was reflected in many of the panels and papers, not least in the premium we've just heard, which I think very creatively explored ways to connect uh, preoccupations in ethnicity and nationalism studies to concerns with migration and concerns with the populist right. However, the perspectives extended well beyond those uh, issues and problems we might associate with current events. There were concerns with underlying demographic conditions, which can induce or reflect ethnic relationships, can alter balances by, amongst other things, forcing population movements or demographic engineering, and which can generate a range of nationalisms. There were studies of particular kinds of conflicts, such as between indigens, settlers, and recent migrants, of how identities were constructed, contested, changed, on policies and politics seeking both to exclude and include newcomers, on the experiences of migrants, on the border history of population movements, 
mass population movement is not a new phenomenon. When we think it's massive, it's partly because we're looking at the very recent past compared to now, but if we go back to movements, not just transatlantic movements, but movements in Asia uh, in the 19th century, massive movements in Northeast Asia, for example, um, these things are not new. On the role that refugees play in making nation-states, as well as the role that nationalism and nation-state formation play in making refugees, we've considered these questions in some 28 panels, to which 94 papers were given, in three workshops and in three plenary sessions with five speakers. And altogether there were 140 participants in the conference. I cannot, it's not possible, and it's too nice outside to give an overall evaluation of all this. It's in the very nature of an ancient conference that it packs in a rich diversity of presentations and discussions that no one person can be involved in and which defy such succinct evaluation. Instead, I want to say something about what makes this all possible, the preparing, the organising, the running of this conference. I'd stress first all the preparations, choosing the theme, linked to who will be the conference co-chairs, the drafting of a call for papers, the selection from the abstract submitted, the grouping of these, those selected into the, uh, for panels, the choice of plenary and workshop themes and inviting speakers, and then the nitty-gritty work of organising the timetables, the use of rooms, the choice of chairs, the drawing up and publication of a programme, and much, much else. And all this, and I stress this every year, is undertaken almost entirely by amateurs. By amateurs, I mean lovers, to take a more as our etymological root of amateur, lovers of ASIN and what it does. I don't mean semi-competence. Indeed, the opposite is true, because one has to be super competent to do these things well, in addition to holding down a job or working for a degree or whatever. But it also, I think, is... I've never liked the idea of Volksgeist or spirit of the nation, a bit of a problem, but I think it gives a kind of quality to ASIN conferences, which I find distinguishes it from most of the conferences I otherwise go to, run by professional associations or research bodies, the lack of hierarchy, the fact that it's run above all by students, the absence of anything like a job market quality to it. People are here because they want to hear these things. <coughs> there are uncertainties about the future of ASIN, deep uncertainties, which we've discussed at this conference, I won't go into now, and we'll be thinking about all the ideas and suggestions that it's produced later and seeing where we might go. I don't want to go into this, I just want to point out that such uncertainty and problems have in no way impacted on one more splendid conference. What I want to do is recognise and thank some of those, and I may miss people and I apologise, who made this all possible. First, in the preparatory stages, the members of the ASIN Executive and of the Nation and Nationalism and Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism editorial teams, who helped in the drafting of the call for papers, helped to the business of selecting from the abstracts submitted. Then, as conference time approached, other kinds of contributions. And at this point, I'm going to embarrass people by singling them out, asking them perhaps to stand and identify themselves if they're here <laughs> so that we can recognise them. Alice Huggett-Smith and Athena Leusi organised the exhibition, the very interesting exhibition that's up in 402. If they're here, I'm looking around, they're not here. I'd still like us to recognise them for what they've done. Okay. 
Then there's that small group of people who helped set things up before the conference, and I saw that happening on, on the Monday evening, and have been around to keep it on the road uh, over the last three days. And again, I'd like these people perhaps to just indicate themselves. I know some of them are certainly here. Ira Constantino. You should take a photograph of yourself at this point. <laughs> uh, Jacques Gray. <laughs> Will Beaufoy. <laughs> Jonas Tudonis. <laughs> Once again, Alice Huggett Smith. But <laughs> the journal. Senate Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism uh, made a special contribution, not least with its movable feast, as it turned out, that we had yesterday lunchtime. Um, and I'd particularly like to thank Anastasia Voronikova for her contribution to the work of the conference.